News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How well-versed do you think you are in the art of conversation? Now, a lot of us would say this might be a lost art, especially when we think about what happened during the pandemic and that we had so many personal connections diminished or maybe lost. Have we forgotten how to talk to each other? How do we get here? How do you make things better? Well, Dr. Paula Morantz-Cohen is with us now, a distinguished professor of English at Drexel University and the author of Talking Cure, an essay on the power of conversation. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, I'm do glad you th- to be here. Well, do you think we've lost the art of conversation? Um, I don't know if we've lost it. I think it's there in all of us. It's something we crave, but we need to practice it conversation like other skills really requires doing. And unfortunately, I don't think there are as many occasions now in our society to do it. Okay, when you say practice it, in what way? How do we do that? Well, we find people to talk to. And I think there are so many occasions in life uh, to talk to people. I mean, the idea of talking to other people as opposed to talking to people who are, are like you or who you know very well. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And actually, you know, I, that's a good place to practice. But I think that the idea of talking to people who are different um, is one of the ways in which we can uh, – heal some of the differences that exist in our society now where people seem to be quite antagonistic to each other if they don't share the same uh, background or ideological position or whatever. And I think if we can just force ourselves to to talk, whether it's on a supermarket line or, um, you know, when, when we're uh, at at our places of business with people that we might not normally talk to, that's a beginning. And it's amazing how replenishing that can be. That is so true. What do you think happened, though, to get it like this? Is it a social media thing where I feel like on social media we spend an awful lot of time, you know, looking and talking to people who think it it feeds us, people who think like us. Therefore, we're in silos. Yeah, I think social media, first of all, the idea that we're going to uh, get what we need more quickly and more easily on social media than we will in the world, in the real face-to-face world, so to speak, is part of it. And then, of course, social media with its algorithms and so forth keeps on feeding us uh, material that reinforces what we already think. And life is complicated and nuanced, and it's much better, I think, when you when you are face-to-face with somebody, you recognize that even if they seem to think the same thing that you do, once you probe and talk, you realize they're a different person and they're coming at it from a different perspective. You can't really get that very easily on social media. And do you think when we're talking about, you know, discussing things with someone or having a conversation with someone that maybe we don't necessarily agree with, or as you put it, somebody we wouldn't normally do that, what lessons can we get from that? What can, how can we benefit from that? Well, I think it makes us more empathetic, um, which is something we all need if we're going to function as citizens in a society. Uh, We need to understand that not everyone's perspective is the same as ours and have a sense that they're coming from a different place. And so their views about life may be different, but they're still human beings and we can 
enjoy them and learn from them, and they from us, if we engage with them in a civil way. Um, obviously, if we argue and are uh, angry, that's just going to drive the divisions further. But conversation, when it's done right, is not angry. It's, it can be passionate, but um, it, it recognizes the humanity of the other person. Where does it go wrong, then, when you say when it's done wrong? What's gone wrong? I think what happens when it goes wrong is that we want to win an argument, for example. And um, then we start getting angry at the other person for not acquiescing to our point of view. And I think uh, approaching a conversation as an argument is really a a bad recipe because, um, you know, you're rarely going to change someone's mind. At least you're not going to change it in the moment. I think by engaging in ongoing goodwill conversation with people, gradually they incorporate some of your ideas into into theirs, and you do theirs into yours, but I don't think that um, you're going to suddenly win, and this whole idea of winning and losing is, is not healthy. Oh my goodness, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head, because I feel like that's what people are doing. Every conversation they're having, they feel like they need to change someone's mind, but why? Why do we need to change somebody's mind? Why can't we just talk to people? Exactly. Why do we need to change other people's minds? And I think it is a matter of just coming into the conversation differently and thinking, I'm going to enjoy this person as a person. I'm not going to judge them by their ideas. Um, you know, obviously, we want, to, we want to find out what they think about things, but not, not judge them and not make that the criterion on which we base our relationship or our conversation. Right. Is it about avoiding topics? I know that's something that people do too. They say, oh, don't talk politics, you know, at the dinner table, because that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. <laughs> sometimes I think it is. I mean, sometimes you just don't only have so much time. And But I do think that if you want to deepen a relationship with somebody, you have to touch on some of those topics. But you have to do so with a great deal of Empathy, as I say, not trying to change the mind, but saying something like, I really want to understand why you think that, as opposed to how could you, how could you possibly think that? <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's a, there's a very different way in which that person will respond if you show genuine interest in why they came to that conclusion. You're so right. Just the way you phrased that, right? That is the exact difference there. Do you believe in the ability of agreeing to disagree? Yes, I do. I mean, I've had friends over the years where I know that on on certain topics, we are always going to disagree, but I love them dearly. And so I I don't want to give up that friendship because we have these areas of disagreement. And we will touch on those areas occasionally, and it can be invigorating to, to discuss them. And as I say, I, I feel that sometimes some aspects of myself do change when I hear why they think that. I mean, I have a friend who passed away a few years ago who was, had very different political views from me. But we talked so much that now when I hear something in the news and I have my reflexive response, I think, what would he think? And it does soften or change or complicate how I see it. It's like looking for the humanity in people. Exactly. And, you know, we're all human. We're all mortal. And I think if we take that large perspective, um, that may help us not get so angry and so, you know, divisive with respect to other people. 
It's hard though, isn't it? Because even the examples that we have out there in public, Dr. Cohen, aren't always great ones. Like I was thinking about politicians who they seem to wear it as a badge of honor these days when they can, you know, dunk on people, when they can, you know, be nasty towards people or ignore other people rather than trying to reach out. There doesn't seem to be a reward for them for reaching out. I agree. Our role models are not particularly good, and that has to do with the media to some extent. Not you. <laughs> not, not right now. Um, not right now. Yeah, not now, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, as a professor, I, my, I have a chapter in my book about the seminar and how important it is for students if, in college or in high school to be in situations um, under good teachers talking together because that becomes a model that they can use when they go out into the world. I don't think our politicians are are necessarily models. They look like they sometimes are in conversation, but it's very performative. But when we're in a in a good class and we're talking freely with a good teacher uh, who's sort of orchestrating it, I think it can be uh, a lesson in how to do it with others after afterward. Hmm. I like this, Dr. Cohen. Give us a little advice if we want to put this into place today. What should we do? Um, I guess maybe sit down with somebody that you've disagreed with or that you have not spoken with and say, how about a cup of coffee? And then truly listen and try and make it into a, a an exchange rather than an argument um, and do it with the idea of empathy being uh, at the fore as opposed to annoyance right. or anger. My feeling is always there's something that you agree on. Right. It might be a TV show or a book that you've read or there's something. (laughs) Maybe you both visited a place that you both like, but talk long enough and there's going to be something that you agree on. Exactly. And there there always is. And it's a matter of probing. And you'd be surprised how much finding that element can bring you together. And then it becomes something you can build on. It's like a germ, you know, that can can sprout. So I would say, yes, I tell students when they go home for Thanksgiving, for example, the beginning of the, the term, talk to that uncle or that person at the table that normally you would avoid. Um, oh. And I get very interesting papers on that. That's a great assignment. I'm going to remember that. Yes. Dr. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you. This has been a delightful. A lovely conversation. It was. Thank you. That's Dr. Paula Morantz Cohen. Uh, Dr. Cohen's a distinguished professor of English at Drexel University and the author of Talking Cure, an essay on the power of conversation. I think there's great lessons in there for all of us. This is Mornings with Simi. You're demonstrating how we can responsibly advance LNG development in our, in our province while protecting the environment. That is Heisler Nation Chief Counselor Crystal Smith. Now, they are the co-owners of BC's latest and newest LNG plant to be approved. But there's a question of LNG and being good for the environment. This is a new liquefied natural gas production facility that's been given the go-ahead. It will be the largest infrastructure project in Canada that is majority Indigenous-owned. So how does it fit into BC's climate action plan? How soon will it be up and running? So we thought, let's talk a little bit more about that this morning with the help of our guest. It's Josie Osborne, who's BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, first off, how soon will this be up and running? What is the timeline for this project? 
But yesterday was a very, very important milestone for the Heisler Nation. And I have to just say it was incredible to be in the room with Chief Counselor Smith and the hereditary chiefs standing behind her with that show of, of strength and pride and support for her and hear just how important this project is for her community. We uh, issued the environmental assessment certificate from the province of British Columbia yesterday, but they still have a number of steps to go through. So a federal approval is still required. They'll have to make a final investment decision before uh, construction could uh, begin. Are you confident that that's going to happen? Well, I think, you know, I can't speak for the federal government. And of course, they've got to continue to do their due diligence. But the, the planning is all underway. And we'll be working with them, of course, signing a memorandum of understanding to help them get their emissions down even lower, already projected to be one of the lowest emitting facilities of its type in the world, producing uh, some of the cleanest liquid natural gas that is possible. And uh, we'll be there to support them in that and get them to near zero by 2030. Okay, so how how is that going to work then? How does this plant fit into BC's Climate Action Plan? Well, we are, that's really what the, the new energy action framework is about. And I mean, there are some folks out there who would say we should just stop everything and that we shouldn't have any kind of a, a development like this. And that really would come at the cost of jobs and opportunities. And again, what I heard from Chief Counselor Smith yesterday But there are others who say, you know, we should just keep going and and go gangbusters and develop as much as possible. And we know that that comes at the expense of our climate targets. British Columbians have been very clear. We need to hit these targets. It's imperative for our kids, for our grandkids to do that. And so what this framework does is it shows a path forward for how LNG facilities like Cedar can be a part of and fit within our climate action targets and how we're going to move forward with the sector at large by bringing in this regulatory emissions cap that will help meet uh, the 2030, 2040, and 2050 goals that we've set out for ourselves. Can you give us a few examples then of how a a plant would do that? What are some of the targets on that path? Well, Cedar LNG will be a fully electrified plant. They'll be using electric tugs, for example, and they'll be taking every step possible to uh, reduce emissions at the facility. Wood fiber is another uh, project that is uh, proposing to begin construction soon. And again, they're proposing to be net zero before 2030. The industry has been taking every step that it can to innovate and reduce its emissions. And that you know, really uh, fits within our aggressive methane reduction targets, for example, to do that. And uh, they may indeed need to use credible, verifiable offsets like we have here in British Columbia, a very stringent program for that in order to be net zero. There are other plants that are also proposed or other facilities that have been proposed. Do you see a path for all of them to also sign on to these conditions? Well, the path is very clear. So all oil and gas facilities, uh, pipelines and uh, oil fields will need to come within this regulatory emissions cap. And any new proposed project that is not, uh, does not have an environmental assessment certificate will need to show a credible plan to be net zero by 2030. That's the path forward. It's the path that we're very clear about and that we'll work with industry uh, to see what they can accomplish and that we'll be able to meet those targets that are so important to British Columbians. Do we have the ability to do that? Like, do we have the infrastructure to help these big projects be net zero? We're, yes, we do. And that's, that's exactly what this program is about. So, our, again, our aggressive methane reduction targets, the kind of innovation that's being forced, the investment 
that we're putting in by taking revenues from the carbon tax, for example, and working with industry to innovate and develop new technologies. But again, the the new rules will be very clear. If you cannot demonstrate a credible plan to be net zero by 2030, a project will not enter the environmental assessment program and then it, it wouldn't be built. I know that one of the key aspects of this particular plan is using that coastal gas link pipeline uh, to help supply it. Uh, how on track is that? Are you concerned about the parts that still are not completed there? Uh, that The coastal gas link pipeline is, is on track with its development and, and will come on in time for Cedar LNG and for LNG Canada Phase 1. Uh, so, no, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. We know that that's an important part of the project and uh, will continue. Okay, so these future projects that are proposed as well, uh, so are you saying that they won't be approved unless they can come up with these, with these, these plans? A project that is, does not have an environmental assessment certificate right now would not be approved. It would not be able to enter the process if it doesn't have a credible net zero 2030 plan. And again, that's really what's important here is showing that there's a clear path forward for how we can undertake responsible resource development in a way that meets our clean BC target, because we know just how important that is for British Columbians. So in your discussions and with other groups, do you foresee that happening? Is that something, have they indicated they can work with us? Well, I think it's it's, uh, early days yet, and uh, initial discussions with industry will be undertaken, of course, as we develop this regulatory emissions cap for the sector. Working with industry, with stakeholders, with First Nations will be a really important part of this process. And we'll begin that, those discussions in April and uh, continue them through the end of the year to finish engagement and then get uh, develop that regulation as quickly as possible after that. So is industry not part of the discussion up until now, like to, to get to this point? There's a strong relationship between uh, my ministry, environment or energy mines and low carbon innovation and industry. So there's regular conversations and, and they're going on at the staff level, of course, all of the time. Working with industry is really important because we need to understand their realities, but also urge them with the innovation and support them in the technological developments that they need, as well as working with communities and First Nations to understand the importance of the jobs and opportunities that it's providing. We've been clear all along. We have five conditions for LNG projects in British Columbia, and we work with industry to make sure that those conditions are met. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Well, thanks so much, and uh, thanks for having me on. That's Josie Osborne, BC's Minister of Energy, Mines, and Low Carbon Innovation, talking about the uh, BC government's approval then for this Cedar LNG plant. This is up near Kitimat. It will be the largest infrastructure project in Canada that is uh, majority owned by uh, an Indigenous group. So it's moving forward, still has a couple of more hurdles to jump through, though. But it is going to be interesting watching how these future plants can or cannot, I guess, fit into uh, these rules that are set out in the Climate Action Plan. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're applying for a job and you see the salary range on the job posting, does that help you then make the same as your coworkers? Do you feel like that is equal pay? Well, that's one of the aspects of this new pay transparency legislation that the provincial government has uh, has proposed. 
But you know what? Not everybody sees this as something that will actually help close that gender pay gap. So let's talk about that. Joining us now is Marjorie Griffin-Cohen, who's the former chair of BC's Fair Wages Commission and a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. This is an ongoing issue I know everywhere. Are there benefits, do you think, to posting salaries on job postings? Oh, absolutely. In fact, there are, that is very good part of this legislation, um, that and also allowing workers to talk to each other about their pay, which right now uh, you can get fired for. So there are very good things. What's disturbing, however, is that this is just voluntary in this legislation, and it will take up until 2027 for this to happen. There's no reason why these really good things that would benefit workers couldn't happen immediately in, by, uh, by just the Minister of Labor putting it in the Employment Standards Act. So, um, uh, you know, that's all, that's all that would need to happen. So this is unfortunate because this legislation is voluntary. What's interesting about that, Marjorie, as well, is you don't get that impression, though, when you hear about the legislation from the government. You get the impression that this is mandatory. Well, nowhere in the legislation does it say that it is. There are no penalties for not reporting. Mostly this is legislation about reporting what pay is. So that's why it's called pay transparency. And this is quite different from what usually happens and what happens in most other provinces in Canada, which is pay equity. And this requires employers to pay males and females the same if they're using the same skill, effort, responsibility, and have the same working conditions. I guess part of me also wonders why employers wouldn't proactively do this already because the job market is so tough out there, right? You want to you wanna be able to attract people to your job posting. Oh, yes, that's true. And I think many do. And I fact, in fact, I think what will happen is that those that report and those that do this are those that already are doing it. So I don't see there doesn't seem to be much value in this legislation. There's no stated purpose at the beginning of the legislation, so we don't really know what it's designed to do. Okay, so what would be better here? Would there, if, to approach this, do you think, in a way that would have been more effective? Well, we could do what has happened in other provinces that have... Uh, smaller gender gaps than BC does. We're the highest in the land. Um, And what they do is they have something called pay equity legislation. It sounds the same, but it's quite different. Because what this requires is that men and women actually be paid the same. And if they aren't, then what, and that's for using the same skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions. And if they aren't, then the employers have a certain number of years in which they close that gender gap. It's usually done on average or on the median, something like that. So that's much better and it's more effective. This has no effectiveness built into it. People would be surprised to find out that the gender pay gap is, is is bad here in B.C., Yes, it's very surprising. In fact, uh, women on average in B.C. earn less than the national average. So we're low for female wages in B.C., whereas for males, it's quite a bit above the national average. So it's, it's odd. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, some of it has to do with the way our labor forces is, uh, is, is constructed um, because men and women tend to do different kinds of jobs, but that doesn't account for it all. Some of it is because employers are not required to pay women the same that they pay men. Okay, so this is, does it feel more like an incremental, perhaps, um, you know, effort to fixing the situation? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, the, although it's it's incremental in that the the uh, 
companies that are to report vary by size from uh, from 2024 to 2027 when they have to report. But it's not incremental because it requires nothing. It does not require change in uh, behavior on the part of uh, firms. That's so interesting. Marjorie, thank you for your time on that. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they did it. The Vancouver Folk Festival will be back this year. So how did it all come together? Well, for one thing, there are some new people in charge too, including Aaron Mullen, president of the Vancouver Folk Music Festival, who joins us now. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. And congratulations. How, how did this all come together? Well, it's a few things. Uh, the fundamental game changer was the province of BC stepping up to fund festivals. Um, it's been a struggle coming out of the pandemic. You know, costs are up in every way. And our, our finances, like a lot of festivals, were really dire. And fortunately, the province stepped up. The other thing is the community responded and, and told us in no uncertain terms they really want to see the festival happen. Um, donations have been coming in, some uh, large private donations. Uh, and these are the things that enabled us to to move forward with the festival this summer. Okay, and when will that happen? Uh, it's going to be July 14th to 16th at Jericho Beach Park. Okay, now that the funding from the province, so that's one-year funding. Is there a path to having the Folk Fest back every year? Yeah, so it's actually, um, it's for two, it's two years. Um, so we've applied for both years, this year and next year. But we're also uh, engaged in a process of long-range planning, developing sponsorships, partnerships, increasing our donor base. Um, and we're going to be looking at how we take this as an opportunity because we really believe the times of greatest danger are often the times of greatest opportunity. This is a chance for us to reimagine, reinvent the festival of it, figure out what works, what doesn't, and uh, build for the future so we can go for another 45 years. I think one of the things that kept the Folk Fest so, you know, the same is that, oh, people liked it that way and it seemed to be working. Is that crowd, that Folk Fest crowd, are they ready for these changes? Do they want to see that? I think they want to see a festival. I think they want to see music in the park. And the thing that everyone talked about is the sense of community. That is what the festival is about. It's a safe place for kids and families. You know, there are multi-generations of families that come to the festival. So there's an older crowd, there's a younger crowd, and we want to keep increasing and diversifying our audience, uh, bringing in more people to the festival. But that sense of community is really the key thing, I think. Yeah, is there a challenge for this year, though, Aaron, in terms of getting artists to come in and getting everything done, or is, is the timeline seems to be getting a little tight? It's a tight timeline for sure, but we have a few things in our favor. So the Folk Festival, because it's been running for so many years in the park, is a well-oiled machine, and we have some fabulous contractors, our site manager, for example, that are coming back and working away, and so our volunteer coordinators coming back. A lot of our key people are coming back. The other thing that's happening is we're working with an advisory group of uh, artistic directors, executive directors from other Western festivals who are helping us to program. So they've been super generous and helpful to let us know who's touring, who's available, what we can plug in. So I think that's going to enable us to have a really powerful and exciting program with the kind of music people expect from our festival. Right. Will there be any kind of significant changes this year that people might notice? 
I think it's going to be a, a very similar model to last year, which was a smaller festival. Um, and we're going to keep something a very similar footprint because we want to be we want to be prudent. We want to be careful to not overextend. We want to come out of this festival in good shape and be able to move forward in a really positive way. Were, were you surprised by the outpouring of support for this? I was delighted. I was delighted. I was elated by the support that that came and and the way that people told us that the festival matters so much to us. And the thing I would say back to them is this is the year. This is the year to to donate. We need those donations. We need people who can donate even a small amount of money every month. That gives the festival funding throughout the year. Um, this is the year to buy tickets. This is the year to come to the festival. And this is the year to volunteer. And people who volunteered in the past, we want them back. The volunteers really power the festival. So that's a key piece as well. This is the year for people to step up. We've listened. We've acted. And now it's it's the community's turn to help us. You say this is the time to, for to put their money where their mouths are, where their support is. Exactly. It's a great opportunity. And people have told us they want the festival. So now it's 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 their turn to help us. You've talked about some, uh, you know, sponsorship slash partnerships. Uh, that's something that I know, you know, I think people felt like the Folk Fest could capitalize on that a little bit more. Have companies come forward? Are there those kinds of talks going on? There certainly are. And we're, um, you know, we've applied for some funding to hire uh, a fundraiser who will work year round just on building partnerships, sponsorships, Um that's something that I think we could have done better in the past, and we're certainly looking at doing better in the future. All right. So you've got a, a lineup, I would imagine, in the works. Like, when will you know more about that? Uh, I would say soon. And I, I would advise people to keep an eye on our uh, website, uh, thefestivalbc.ca. Um, we'll have more information soon, and there's a lot of exciting things in the works. That's all I can say at this point. Oh, but um, That sounds we'll, so intriguing. What do you mean? What kind of exciting things? Things are going to make people want to come to Jericho Beach Park and, and hear some music. Wow. Okay, I like this too. Uh, okay, this sounds like a year of opportunity though, doesn't it, Aaron? Because, it, it, because of the reaction I think that people had? It really is, you know. And I mean, it's, it's great that folks like you in the media want to talk to us. So that's an opportunity for us to let people know the festival's back. And also to remind people that this is this is the year. It's their year to step up, to attend, to get their friends to come out to the festival, make donations, to volunteer. It's a wonderful event and, and and we're so we're just so delighted it's back. Now were you always involved or is this new a new role for you? Um, so I've been on the board for a year. I uh, have been invo- I've been volunteering with the festival for decades. And I spent about 10 years as one of what we called the party queens, which was a group who uh, ran the volunteer parties. So, I've, yeah, I've been involved with the festival a long time, and uh, and I'm really glad to be part of this board. The board is it's really exciting because, it, you know, we were kind of down to a small group, and now we have a lot of new people, many of whom have a lot of experience with the festival. Um, and we're we're working together incredibly well, unity of purpose, you know, eyes on the prize, which is getting to the park in July. Well, sounds good. Aaron, congratulations. Thanks so much. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. That's Aaron Mullen, who's president of the Vancouver Folk Music Festival. It is going ahead. And you know what? We kind of figured that, right? When they said they were shutting it down and that was the end of it, I figured, oh, no, no, there's no way. There's no way the devoted goers to the Folk Fest are going to let this happen. And clearly, it is not. So congratulations to all the fans out there. But as you heard Aaron Mullen say, now take that fandom, take your love of the Folk Music Festival, and you have to translate it into solid support because that's what they need to make sure that it keeps keeps happening every single year. So check out their website. They said they've got more information coming. And of course, we'll help them out uh, by making all of that information public so you can find out all about it too. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it seems like it would be a simple thing to deal with repeat offenders, right? I mean, look at their record, keep them in jail, but the system doesn't work that way. And the different parts of the system don't always talk to each other to know what's going on, like police officers and probation services and and support services. So there's a new initiative announced by the provincial government that uh, hopes to change that. It's aiming to change that anyway. It's called the Repeat Violent Offending Intervention Initiative. And the $25 million being spent on it is meant to help with community safety all over the province. But how is this going to work? Well, Mike Farnworth joins us now, BC's Minister of Public Safety. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So how is this going to work? What are we talking about? So what we're looking at is setting up repeat violent offender initiative that's going to involve prosecutors, probation officers, uh, along with uh, targeted enforcement and enhanced investigation and monitoring of particular individuals. It's going to involve 21 Crown Counsel, uh, another 21 professionals out of the BC Prosecution Service that's going to establish and support the dedicated prosecution teams being put in place. Um, The teams are going to be located around the province. So, you know, Victoria, Vancouver, uh, Prince George, Williams Lake, Nanaimo, and a a number of other um, um, communities as well. Um, We're already working in terms of the recruitment that's required uh, for the individuals. Um, So there's a whole uh, initiative around this that I think is going to be quite comprehensive. Okay, I guess a lot of people would wonder, why haven't we done this before? Well, we've been actually been done. Been working on a whole range of initiatives when it comes to to public safety since we've taken taken office. Whether it's uh, in terms of putting in the province's first witness protection program, the first uh, forensic firearms lab uh, in in BC, so we're not having to send things to uh, to, to Ottawa. We've been dealing with issues on uh, the money laundering and organized crime and guns and gangs, um, and. The local mayors, uh, communities came to us and said, look, we're having problems in our communities. Um, we need help on that. It's okay. We commissioned the Lepard Butler report, came out of that. Out of that were a series of recommendations we've been working on. This was one of those recommendations, and we started working on it once we got that report and, and saying, okay, what else do we need to do? It's also why we raised the issue in October of changes needed to the uh, the criminal code when it comes to bail reform. Um, and we, BC put that on the table in Ottawa, we finally got uh, uh, an agreement uh, working with other provinces and the federal government uh, just this past Friday on changes to the criminal code as regards to, uh, to bail reform. Okay, so with these changes then that we're talking about, can you walk us through how you see this working then? So if, if a repeat offender shows up in court once again, what should happen as a result of these, okay. these new initiatives? So, so what, what, how we see it working is, is that both before court and after, so after, so before court, uh, police have a good idea of, let's say, who the individual is. They're working with the prosecution uh, service in terms of Crown Counsel. Here's the individual's record, uh, making sure they have all the information that they need to have to have the 
the best possible case in court to know what kind of conditions need to be asked for when it comes to things such as bail, for example. Uh, tie that in with initiatives with the, the changes that we're expecting um, coming in terms of the criminal code, and then so stronger, uh, stronger bail conditions or bail may not, you know, be granted in particular cases. For example, uh, that way you have the ability to make sure that this individual uh, may be held for, may be held in the, in custody until their trial, for example, or after they come out. Uh, working with probation officers uh, and the support services that are required, so that they're and, and more in in depth, intense monitoring of the individual, making sure they're abiding by their conditions of their release, for example. So it's a, it's a much more coordinated, a much more intense uh, approach to dealing uh, with, with, with repeat offenders, in particular violent offenders. Okay, and so you see this, this is going to happen all over the province? Yeah, as I said, it's uh, all regions of the province. The teams are going to be located, you know, I mentioned a number of the communities uh, yes. uh, a moment ago. Uh, so, you know, it will be all, it'll be province-wide, uh, comes into effect uh, April, and we expect to have the teams uh, up and running over the next, over the, over the following four months. Right. This was piloted before, wasn't it? I think you talked about that yesterday. It was piloted, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, back in, in 2012, it was piloted and it wasn't followed through on, um, which is unfortunate uh, that it's, uh, that it's you know, didn't continue. But um, we looked at the recommendations uh, out of the Lepard Butler report and, you know, this makes sense. So let's, let's get it going again. Is this about giving tools? I mean, when, when an offender like that comes before the court, it's about being able to just give more information to all the people involved in, in whether or not that person should get bail? It's about having all of the information uh, to make the so the judge has the ability to say, hey, this individual is uh, you know is a is a is a is a threat or is a danger, and therefore either a uh, you know should not be released or with ex- extremely strict conditions on. Police know what they are. Probation officers know what they are. Uh, it's ensuring that every every aspect of the uh, the the system is working right. is working together. Okay, so you mentioned there'll be hiring, I guess, involved in this. So how soon do you think this could be integrated into the system? Well, the recruitment uh, is, already, is already underway. So the recruitment of prosecutors, uh, BC Prosecution Service professional staff, probation officers, correctional staff, that's already underway. And so our hope is, or our, our plan is that it will be uh, the beginning of April, and then it will be fully uh, in place uh, four months after that. Right. Did some of these stories worry you? I know there's been a lot of stories in the media about some of these cases, about these repeat offenders. Did that start to concern you hearing about them? Of course it does. Um, you know, uh, public deserves to be safe in their community. And and whenever you hear a story like that, it's, it's concerning and because uh, it's just not acceptable. Uh, and what we've seen, and that's why we were so pleased last Friday when we were able to get that agreement uh, commitment from the federal government to make changes in terms of, uh, of, of bail reform, and in particular focusing specific targeted amendments on uh, reverse onus that will expand that, um, I think is, 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 is an important step. Um, it's going to require, you know, there's all levels of government from the, the federal, the provincial, and local government uh, working cooperatively to be able to deal with some of the challenges that communities have been facing, particularly when it comes to repeat violent offenders, which I think all of us are concerned about. Okay, so that's coming. I know that we, we spoke to Justice Minister David Lametti about that. They, he was hoping to get this done by this summer. Do you think that's an accurate timeline? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the commitment they made to us in Ottawa was that they wanted to get it done this parliamentary session. Uh, and if they do that, I think that will be a very step forward. And we've had good cooperation uh, from the federal government, from Minister Lametti and Minister Mendicino. Um, we started this in, in October uh, of last year uh, in the federal, provincial, territorial ministers meeting in, in Dartmouth. British Columbia put this on the table. Other provinces said, you know what, we're having the same problems, and it varied right across the country. Uh, and you've seen, you know, random stranger attacks here. Uh, you saw it in, in Ontario, in Toronto. Uh, in Manitoba, it was issues, people, random attacks with bear spray, for example. We put forward, we wanted to see uh, reverse onus, not just on firearms as it is now, but a much broader frame so knives, weapons, um, looking at individuals who had uh, engaged in a violent offense, uh, in, you know, previously. Uh, so we were uh, with, pleased with the response from the federal government. Okay, and before I let you go, I have to ask you, when will this Surrey police decision be coming? Um, the work is being still being done. It's an incredibly complex uh, uh, issue in terms of restaffing and, and, and you know, in essence, unscrambling an omelet. Uh, but it, it will be shortly. It is, the work is, is, is getting done. All right, shortly. We're going to hold you to that. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thanks. your time. Bye-bye. That's Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety, talking about bail reform, changes coming to deal with repeat violent offenders in the system. I know that's been a huge concern there. We'll continue to track that story for sure.